Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 31st, 2023, and my guest is philosopher Jacob Howland. He is provost and director of the Intellectual Foundations Program at UATX, commonly known as the University of Austin. His latest book is Glaucon's Fate, History, Myth, and Character in Plato's Republic. Jacob, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. It's great to, to be on your show. Our topic for today is the impact of artificial intelligence, AI, uh, on our Humanity on the Human Experience uh, is based on an essay you wrote in on, on uh, the website Unheard. We've done a number of episodes recently on whether AI is going to destroy life on Earth. An important question. Uh, for the record, I am concerned but not panicked. I'm not sure that's the right position. I reserve the right to become panicked uh, in the future. But today we're going to talk about a different aspect of AI. We're going to assume it doesn't kill us off uh, in the uh, extinction sense. But we're going to look at the question of whether it's good for us or not. So let's start with what you're worried about. Uh, what's wrong with AI um, and having humans use it extensively? Seems like a great thing. Well, AI certainly has its uses. Um, and I mean, I know many people who uh, consult ChatGPT uh, if they want, for example, to generate a syllabus quickly on, let's say, uh, uh, depletion of uh, nutrients from the soil, uh, you know, uh, environmental impacts of certain human practices, you know, things like this. It will gather information and put it together in a tidy, neat way. Of course, there is the case now of uh, lawyers uh, sort of cheating on their on their preparation for cases and asking ChatGPT to uh, pursue, you know, uh, produce legal briefs. And of course, one of the problems with ChatGPT is that it it, it fictionalizes, it makes things up. But um, my concerns are really quite broad. Um, let me start with this social concern. Um, I recently have been studying Henry Adams' book, uh, The Education of Henry Adams. And Adams, in the last uh, brilliant chapters of his book, uh, lays out what he calls a dynamic theory of history, um, in which he explains that um, human beings who are a kind of force of nature, right, we have certain capacities and powers, um, are shaped by and shape the forces with which they interact. And Adams, during his lifetime, he was born in 1838, noticed um, uh, a very sort of disturbing acceleration of social change. I mean, between 1838 and uh, 1900, right, you had the introduction of railways, telegraphs, telephones, um, airplanes, for goodness sake, ultimately, um, all kinds of technological inventions and so forth. And he began to reflect on this, and he he set forth uh, a hypothesis, which is that um, the amount of power or force at the disposal of human beings uh, doubles or has doubled every decade since around 1800. And already by 1900, he felt that, you know, if you sort of think of that, the, the, the rate of acceleration is the same, but the curve goes up, right? Um, he began to be concerned about the effects on society, on um, sort of the... Uh, 
destruction of organic communities and the dislocation of human beings and so forth. So if we think about artificial intelligence, um, the rate of acceleration seems to be even greater uh, in terms of the forces at our disposal than, than Adams understood it to be. And um, one of my concerns is the way that AI is going to put loads of people out of work, right? There are all sorts of uh, jobs, computer programming, for example. I mentioned lawyers earlier, perhaps lawyers. Um, education is going to be transformed radically. That's something we can talk about a bit because uh, students are using things like ChatGPT to write their papers and no doubt professors are using them to write their lectures and so forth. Um, and um, that's going to present a huge problem. It's going to present the problem of enforced leisure, if you like. Um, our lives are structured around meaningful activities. And if you sort of think of it from Aristotle's perspective, um, happiness is an activity of the soul, as he says, right? You're, you're engaged in some kind of work, some kind of um, activities that have significance to you. If we take away employment from a large number of individuals, they've lost one of the great sources of meaning in their lives. So that's just one thing, right? What are people going to do uh, when they have this free time? Now, you know, you recall from uh, discussions during the era or, you know, the last few years uh, when we were all shut down by COVID. And, and I remember reading some articles saying, well, this is great because right? people now have time to, uh, to do oil paintings, you know, and to listen to music and so forth. Um, but that raises another problem. And that is that, um, we haven't been trained, as John Maynard Keynes points out in a famous essay called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. We haven't been trained uh, for leisure. In fact, that's a very, that's a very old uh, uh, problem. Aristotle points it out. But it even goes before Aristotle. Um, Adam and Eve couldn't handle light gardening, right? <laughs> uh, Aristotle says, and he has, a, he has a critique of the Spartans, but it extends to the Athenians as well, says in the politics, you know, uh, War is for the sake of peace, and business, which you conduct in peace, is for the sake of leisure. But the Spartans don't know how to be at leisure. Not only they, but not even the uh, the other Greeks. And Aristotle deplores the fact that with, when they have leisure time, they sit around and drink lots of wine and tell myths. Well, let's start with that. I mean, I think I know you have other things to say about AI and other tools, but you know, this is a very old worry the worry that technology will get rid of, eliminate jobs. Uh, it hasn't. Uh, if anything, our, our jobs have gotten more pleasant, uh, say, over the last 100 years. 100 years ago, uh, the dangers of, of a lot of the workplace were quite high. There was uh, farming, which was very dangerous. Uh, manufacturing, which is very dangerous. Those jobs have been uh, reduced greatly in, in the West uh, as a source of, of income or a source of meaning. And in theory, they've been replaced by more meaningful jobs. In theory, jobs like you and I have, uh, jobs that use a different set of skills than, than our manual labor or physical strength. In theory, jobs that enhance what is human about us and, and make us, uh, that that's you know, we're not so much beasts of burden in the workplace the way we were in the past. I don't think, I don't know whether that's been good for humanity or not. Uh, I would argue there's a lot more leisure in our life in all kinds of ways. Certainly outside of the workplace, there's a lot, there's leisure by definition. 
uh, to the extent we avoid the workplace when we're not physically at work. But even at work, when we are on the job in the office, we often are free to do things that would normally be called leisure, surf the internet, uh, do other things like that. And I don't, I'm agnostic about this, this issue of whether leisure is good or bad for human beings. I agree with you that, that work is an important source of meaning for many people, not all. Uh, again, I think I'm very lucky and, and you are as well. But I, I assume, I assume that leisure is, is good. Now, I can see that not all of us, including myself, are good at using it. But do you want to you want to argue that we should stop technologies that make it easier to take leisure? Well, I actually have a lot to say about leisure in connection with idolatry. I think we'll come to that later. But let me just um, make a couple of observations here. Yes, work is safer um, by all kinds of measures. Um, you know, even I was just looking the other day about uh, oh, deaths per hundred thousands of. Um, teenagers or children in the 1970s, right? And it's much, much lower now um, than it was. Because, you know, we used to ride around without bike helmets and stuff like this. Um, but I would, I would point to a couple of things here. Um, farming is dangerous work, but it's very interesting work. And it, it's work that engages a human being across uh, sort of a whole spectrum of um, um, capacities. So if you're going to be a farmer, you have to um, understand um, how to help a cow give birth. You have to be able to build fences. You have to understand planting fields and different kinds of grains and when to harvest. And you're very much in touch with nature, right? Um, it turns out, and I, I remember reading this book by Harry Braverman, uh, uh, the title of which I can't remember now, but he was a, a Marxist economist. Uh, who started out as a kind of metal cutter, right? And he made the argument that um, uh, what's happening with sort of the advance of technology is a kind of, to use Marx's terms, um, alienation of the worker from his product, right? And he talks about the kind of managerial um, regime that began in sort of the late 19th century. Uh, so it used to be that you'd have craftsmen, right, who would craft an object carefully and put themselves into it, right? And, under a sort of managerial regime, you're sort of following uh, cut and paste orders by uh, that are sort of given to you by by these managers. Um, I remember, uh, and I, I believe he cites in in his book um, an American government organization that was listing skilled and unskilled jobs, and they listed farming as unskilled, right? Which he thought was outrageous because you require lots of skills to farm. Uh, whereas um, he points out. Or one could point out that um, flipping burgers uh, at a fast food joint is semi-skilled labor because, in some instances, right, you push a button and the and the machine times it or flips it over or something like that. I would also point to the fact that um, you know there's not a whole lot of job satisfaction, Russ. Now I haven't read the uh, statistics recently, but my recollection is that surveys suggest that most people aren't really happy with their jobs. Uh, it's not as if they're, they're, you know, people go to work and come back and say, you know, I, I have a vocation and it's very exciting and so forth. Now, you and I, I think you're right. We're lucky because we're academics and we get to read and write and think and, and so forth. Another thing I would just point out here is this, um, with regard to leisure, and let me just be absolutely clear. 
I think leisure is absolutely essential. That's separate from the claim that we don't know how to use our leisure. Okay, so I'm going to come back to the essential character of leisure in a bit. Okay, but let me let me ask you about this issue about satisfaction. I don't trust most of those studies. I think mm-hmm. they're often done with an axe to be ground. Uh, that I they come with an agenda, but I think the more basic idea would be: um, I don't want to work on a farm, um, and most farmers don't want to sit in an office all day and read. <laughs> We're all different. We choose the things that make our hearts sing, that put food on the table for our family, and definitely there's trade-offs often between those two things. Um, but I, I don't. I I worry about the nature of the workplace, but I'm not sure it's plausible to argue that the alienation of people from their active, you know, their their work product is is the source of our spiritual or personal malaises that that afflict us in the West. I will tell listeners I have an upcoming episode with the sheep farmer. So we'll we'll get to hear his his perspective. He he is chosen, he's he's Oxford educated, but has chosen to stay on the farm for many of the reasons I think you would you would applaud. But most people it's not appealing. It's not what they want to do. It doesn't speak to them. Uh and and they're happy to lose some of the meaningfulness of of work to have less of it. Uh, you know, the the fact that the modern work week is creeping downward uh, in certain measures, not all, uh, in certain measures, or certain lifetime hours are creeping downward as they have for a century or so, is most people think that's a good deal. Now, whether they can use that time well, that's a separate question, but I'm not going to, I'm going to have trouble with that, but that's where, that's what I think we should move on to next, unless you want to talk about this issue of meaningfulness on the job. Well, let me just say this. Um, uh, our conversation has made me realize that I, I have a somewhat complicated thesis, and it's this. Work is not particularly meaningful for a lot of people, um, but it's essential for their lives. And I don't just mean in terms of putting food on the table, but psychologically. Yeah. Um, take the case of uh, the lottery winner, right? In fact, uh, my son um, had an eighth grade teacher who was making a film about people who've won the lottery. What happens when you win the lottery? Okay, let's say you're a, a custodian in a building, you know, doing janitorial work. You win the lottery. What do you do? First thing, quit your job. Move somewhere else, right? Um, buy a new house. And all of a sudden, the structure of your life is gone, like the ba- the day-to-day structure. Now, you have to regenerate or reproduce that. But the point of the film was that lottery winners are not happy often because they, they sort of veer off, right? So that's one concern. But what I really want to get to is, is kind of the fundamental importance of leisure and the way in which AI very curiously cuts off the opportunities for leisure um, in a in a kind of foundational way, while at the same time throwing people into a condition where they've got to fill their time. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. But I, I just want to add, and, I, and we talked about it in a recent episode with uh, Tyler Cowen, I'm not convinced that the chat GPT is going to eliminate jobs. Um, you know, the driverless car was uh, the rage eight or so years ago, and that was going to change the workplace, which it would have, 
if it were viable, it would have put millions of taxi cab drivers and truck drivers out of work overnight if it had fulfilled its promise and been a viable technology. It may still be. I'm, you know, I remain skeptical, but if, if it did come, it would have a dramatic effect on the lives of millions of people. And that transition might be very unpleasant. Uh, I don't know whether we would want public policy to, to reflect that unpleasantness to try to slow it down. But uh, I, I just want to say, it's not clear to me that that AI per se will reduce the number of jobs. It's just kind of interesting. Um, there have been a lot of trends, social trends that have scared people about whether jobs were going to disappear. Outsourcing was the most run, the most dramatic one before this. Outsourcing, the, the, the sending manufacturing abroad is going to destroy X million jobs in America. That didn't happen. Uh, so I, I think one of the lessons possibly may be different this time, but one of the lessons is that new activities come along because these technologies make things less expensive, conserve resources, and so on. So let's put that to the side. I think I think there's a general question about the use of leisure that I concede because, you know, this device that I hold in my hand, my smartphone, I see what it's done to my attention span and my ability to be a focused friend at times or family member. And I am concerned about it, but I also recognize that it's a new technology. Uh, norms that might come along that would help us deal with that may still come into place and uh, maintain our our humanity. So do you want to say anything about that on leisure or yeah. anything else? Do you go to something else yeah. if you want? Sure. So I mean, as I said at the outset, I think that there are, there are a whole range of problems that are raised by the rapid development, of, incredibly rapid development of AI. Uh, and, and, you know, let me just say for the record, um, I would put um, uh, human extinction, right? Like physical extinction of human beings sort of lower on the list probably than many. But one thing, and you've already pointed to it, is human capacities tend to atrophy and disuse, okay? So we all use GPS. I'm quite convinced that back in the day when we had to actually figure out where we were going, right, and maybe read a map and so forth, we had better navigational skills, okay? Um, a lot of uh, creative activity is going to be, and, and already is, being sort of handed over to AI. I was speaking with uh, someone the other day whose mother, I think, works in like fashion design. And he said, she's going to be put out of business because you don't actually, you, you can generate um, images. Um, you, can, you, can, you can take models or you can maybe even construct them because now AI can do that um, and, and put them anywhere in the world against any backdrop uh, under any lighting and so forth. Um, so let's just take writing and reading. Um, I was speaking to an academic director of a consortium of high schools recently. It was kind of an unsettling conversation because he said, I said, what do you do about ChatGPT? He said, well, we told the kids in the schools they can't use ChatGPT. Then it turned out they were using ChatGPT. So now we have assignments. We say, go ahead and use ChatGPT. But our writing assignments are edit, right? Like edit what's coming up on ChatGPT. And then he said to me, and the guy's maybe 40 years old, uh, look, I use ChatGPT all the time. I run my articles through it. It gives me suggestions. Um, I take maybe half of them, you know, 
And I said, but here's the thing. You learned how to write before chat GPT. If you reduce writing classes for kids who are in eighth grade or something or 10th grade to looking at generated content and then reflecting on it and trying to figure out how to make it better, they're not actually going to learn how to write. So seeding these intellectual capabilities and creative capabilities to AI, it seems to me, is a very bad idea. And in my article, I suggest that we might even seed moral capabilities, right? Like AI can make judgments for us, not just where to drive, but what to do. Now, I think that atrophy thing is 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 a very deep question. And let's talk about that for a bit. Um, one argument would be, who cares? Right? Uh, we, we lived in a world until recently. Well, for most of human history, being able to write was irrelevant. We entered an era of, I don't know, around... 1800, I don't know when it would have started, a very short era, perhaps, of when being able to communicate in writing was very useful. And that era is now that it will still exist. It'll just be ChatGPT will be doing the writing and communicating for me in a digital form, which is really no different. True, I can't do my own anymore, but why should I care? I mean, I don't really believe that, Jacob. It does make, alarms me greatly, but I wonder if I'm right. Uh, Tell me, why should I care? It's not just writing, but it's the whole question of logos, of, of like the word, right? The spoken word as well as the written word. So we begin the Hebrew scriptures with God creating the universe, right? By, by speech, right? God said, let there be light and so forth. And then one of the first things, if not the first thing that we see human being doing, right? The first human being is naming the animals, right? They brought before Adam, Adam, the first human being, and that 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 individual names the animals. Um, or we can also go to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, right? The Logos. Uh, there's something both human and divine about the power of speech or Logos. And again, in the, I'm using the Greek word, which because it can mean thought, reason, reflection, you know, speech, etc. Um, and Education, it seems to me, is a, let's sort of break it down to a twofold process, right? Opening the soul to what is and um, allowing it to be receptive, right? Receptive, perhaps uniquely among species, although I don't know, um, to the whole, right? And taking, taking those experiences and impressions in, that's one part of it. And then the other thing is communicating, right? And that means putting into words or maybe paintings or music and sculpture and so forth, all of which, by the way, are augmented by words because you say, what is this painting about, right? What does this sculpture depict? Um, and sharing your individual perceptions with others. I think that's very fundamental to humanity. What's going to happen if we rely on chat GPT or not chat GPT, let's say advanced AI, right? Cause it's, it's going to keep going. Um, to do our talking, our writing, that ultimately means to do our thinking for us. And it seems to me that from the point of view of an educator, education is about taking young men and women as they are with the peculiar capacities and abilities that they bring, which they acquire through nature and circumstance, and developing them. And it's focused on the individual, right? The individual human being who the Bible tells us, right? Has a kind of divine spark. Um, 
is that divine spark going to reside only in the ether in sort of the digital world? And one other thing I'd say, Russ, is that if you, if you ask ChatGPT to do your writing for you, what does ChatGPT do? It goes to the, to the, to the information encoded on the internet, which is not, you know, necessarily high quality. Some of it is and kind of scoops it up, regurgitates it, hands it back. Uh, is that going to be a source of new and fresh ideas of the sort that human beings value? I don't know. It does some interesting art. It does some interesting music in its very primitive form. Now, I think I want to come back to the atrophy question, though, because I think that is the is the deep one. Um, I've noticed that I have it's harder for me to express myself in English because I'm working on my Hebrew. And if I did that more intensely, the Hebrew part, certainly I can't. I can't be who I am in Hebrew. Right. I've, it's not an atrophy. It's just, I've never developed it sufficiently. As I try to develop it, I pull back some of my ability to think, quote, in English. And it's an essential part of who I am, how I express myself, either in speech or writing. And so one way to take, to say what I hear you saying is that if we seed, C-E-D-E, if we seed our capacity to communicate to technology, uh, we lose the ability to express ourselves. So let's just talk about Twitter for a second, because here we have a little um, uh, exemplary case, let's say, of what um, uh, artificial intelligence in a very broad sense might do, Um, or let's say sort of the kind of digital sort of development of digital devices, et cetera. it conditions people to generating texts. Now, when you say the word text or I say the word text, we might be thinking of, you know, the Gilgamesh epic or something, right? But now we're talking about a little short thing, right? Now the texts come along and then this is a binary technology, right? We respond in binary ways, thumbs up, thumbs down, right? So we're already being conditioned to sort of behave like machines, right? Uh, and if you kind of expand that out, uh, again, if you're not thinking and you're not writing and you're not developing your skills in language and so forth, and you're that, then you're seeding that right to this these machines, um, are you going to lose the capacity to judge what is put before you? Will will your skills of judgment kind of erode, right? Um, and not just with regard to judgment like, wow, this is really insightful, or this is a good book or something like that. But judgment with regard to questions like, is this true? How should I understand these things, right? Now, that's a whole nother thing about AI. One of the things I'm very concerned with is the potential for artificial intelligence um, to not only surveil us and gather all kinds of information um, about us and so forth, but um, to manipulate us very fundamentally. Uh, you know Plato's cave image, right? You've got people sitting in the bottom of the cave and they're looking at shadows on the wall cast by puppeteers behind them. Well, what's already happened with digital technology is we live in a bunch of caves, right? Sometimes ca- caves tailored to us individually. I mean, you've all had the experience of, you know, um, searching for something on the internet or purchasing something and then thereafter 
up comes that product, right? Or different versions of it. We already know that information that is gathered about individuals who are listening to certain things or, or reading certain articles, the algorithm then generates more of the same, right? Which kind of cuts us down and puts us in our own cave, as I'm saying, right? Um, now, what if, um, uh, oh, and we also have a problem, as you know, um, telling uh, deep fake videos and photographs and so forth um, from, the, from the real thing. We also have a problem, coincidentally, on the ideological side of media, uh, basically propagandizing, right? So, it, so, you know, making certain kinds of judgments and emphasizing certain facts, neglecting to mention others and so forth. So in our culture, there's an issue that's rather very, very serious, which is it's hard to know what the truth is. And not only that, like even the truth about facts, I'm sure you've been in conversations where people will simply deny that something is a fact that you are quite convinced is a fact. Uh, and then, you know, you know how the conversation goes, right? So they say, well, where did you learn that fact? Right. And one side might say, I learned it in the New York Times. And the other side might say, that's untrustworthy. Where did you learn your fact? And Fox News. Right. Well, I'm not going to listen to that. Now, once you get ChatGPT, which is which has already shown a tendency, by the way, to fictionalize. I mean, you know, uh, it's, people are suing it for libel because it just makes up stuff, uh, makes up legal cases that don't exist and so forth. Um, it, it does that perhaps unintentionally, for sure. I mean, it does it unintentionally because of its algorithms. But what if you have intentional feeding, um, which is designed based on your psychological profile, right? For the sake of, let's say, manipulating you to vote for a certain candidate or to take a certain action. Um, where will the truth lie? How will we know? What if somebody says, here's a video, here's Vladimir Putin conceding or something like that? Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm worried about all that. I think we're already, we, we've already got that problem without ChatGPT and ChatGPT, I think, just accelerates it. Yes. Um, and it, that has, deeply disturbing implications for democracy that a, an institution that is not very healthy anyway right now, in my view. But I want to come back to this, to the educational point you made. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to reframe your argument and see if you, you agree with this reframing. We talked about, I know you're a reader of Homer and uh, I forget what episode it came up in, but we were talking about, uh, I think the Odyssey on the program at some point. And Alistair wrote me and said, well, I don't need to read it because I've read the comic book and I know what happens. And I think it was a serious comment. I'm not 100% sure, but we could, we could at, at some level, I would call it bad, poor education, we, we could test students on whether they read Homer by asking them, What's the name of the one-eyed monster in the cave that Odysseus and his men encounter? Answer, Cyclops, A, Cyclops, B, Shrek, C, King Kong, D, whatever. So one level of reading a great work would be, did you, did you do it? And in doing it, did you uh, understand it at the most cursory narrative level? So that's not education. Um, I could tell you what's a comic book could tell you. I could tell you the plot of of the Odyssey. That is not what is the value of reading. You don't read the Odyssey to find out what happened. You might be pulled along, but it's not why we assign it here at Shalem College. It's not why I'm sure students at UATX will will read it. You read it to learn something about 
the human experience in yourself, and that learning takes place through the arduous task of wrestling with the text. Um, ChatGPT, you can feed Homer into, into it. It'll summarize it beautifully, by the way. Do a really good job. It's really good at that. And I think my worry would be that if education stays on its current course, which is somewhat um, spit back and parroting, that ChatGPT will be a very uh, powerful way to look smart and the skills of reading that that are quite challenging will not be acquired. That's a, the atrophy, a different version of the atrophy argument. And we will lose the ability to read, read thoughtfully, to read carefully, to read skeptically. In theory, that should change how we teach. And that could be good. We should change how we teach both high school and college, in my view. So is there any grounds for optimism there that, that this will force us along the lines of a recent episode we did with Ian Leslie, that it's true that ChatGPT is pretty good at imitating humans. That's because we become somewhat machine-like. Once we are forced to deal with this, maybe we'll become more human. So when you say change how we teach, Russ, do you mean um, going back to um, opening the Odyssey and saying, here's Odysseus crawling out of the sea and running into Nausicaa, the princess, and reading the text and trying to understand what's going on? Do you mean going back to the old way of doing things? Yeah, because the the, mm -hmm. the regurgitate large lecture hall can't grade 150, 300, 500 essays, although ChatGPT will try, of course. Uh, professors will use it. But the, the whole idea of multiple choice exams will be essentially impossible um, or, excuse me, will not be interesting. You won't learn anything from whether people can memorize the basic facts about a, a, um, a text because they won't have to read it to do that. So we want people, our students to actually read the books. We're going to have to ask them different kind of questions than what happened in Chapter 7. And we're going to force them, as they, we should, to grapple with what the text means for themselves, their lives, and the people around them. And that would be a good thing. Maybe it won't happen, but it would be a good thing, I think. Yeah, well, I don't, I mean, I don't know whether ChatGPT will prove to be so awful, so conspicuously awful to teachers and students that we'll throw up our hands and say, goodness sakes, we, we can't proceed this way anymore. Let's go back to basics. Um, maybe, but I mean, there are several problems here. First of all, in order to teach students how to read, you need to have people who know how to read. Now, uh, let's just take it as a hypothesis. You and I know how to read because we're of a certain age. Um, but already, I mean, you know, we've, we've got people coming through, uh, students now, some of them, or maybe many of them. It's hard for me to figure it out. Uh, I know 2012 is the date that Jonathan Haidt and others have said, you know, anxiety and mental health and so forth all went downhill because kids were using smartphones, et cetera. But um, how long is it going to take for this uh, awakening to occur? And will there still be sufficient teachers who actually know how to read? But let me go back to something else you were saying about, about the importance of, of reading. Um, it's true that, uh, you know, if we're just generating tweets and, and we're sort of reading stuff that comes across our social media, What's happening is that we're using words in a very different way. 
um, than, say, Homer, right? Um, words have, um, first of all, lost their specificity because if, you, if you're not used to reading good books, you're not going to be very attuned to um, the differences, the nuances in different terms, you know, and I'm sure you're like me when I'm writing and painstaking and I'm thinking, you know, here's a word, it does the job, but there's something else that might be better and so forth, right? So you sort of lose that capability. In many cases, words become simply personal expression, right? Or you're going on uh, LinkedIn, uh, I don't even know the names of all these things, um, Instagram, okay, let's say to communicate something about yourself, here's a news update, right? Or, or they're sort of political tokens, right? Because we're now distinguished by what language we're using and so forth. Um, what are, what are word, what are the words of the Odyssey? What, what are the words of the Hebrew scripture? Well, these are deep things and they're currents flowing deep in the water, right? And when you learn to read, you think about them and, and, you, and you run into passages that are opaque. And so you cast your line into the water and you're sort of fishing and all of a sudden you feel a tug, right? And it's this strike of meaning and you haul it up. That's what real reading is. That's what, that's when you begin to understand the depth that is contained in speech and in the word. Um, that I think is not an experience that uh, as many people today have as, as let's say a hundred, 200 years ago when books were much scarcer. Um, but I dare say they were better on the whole, like the King James Bible or something like that. You know, Lincoln could give a, uh, addresses in which he's referring to biblical things. And he knows that pretty much everyone who's going to hear this thing knows what he's referring to, right? Because this is a part of the fabric of our existence. That's not being replaced by Twitter and Instagram and, and LinkedIn. And now I'm out of words because I don't know any of those other platforms. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how to think about this. I don't, um, I think it's easy to be worried about it. Um, I think people have been worrying about it for a long time. Um, there's a remarkable essay by Mark Helper, and I think he wrote it in, in 2000. Um, although the one internet version I found uh, said it was 1999, but I think it was either December 31st, 1999, or January 1st, 2000 was the pub date. And it, it's called The Acceleration of Tranquility. And it's a fabulous essay. Uh, we won't link to it, I suspect, because we try to keep copyright laws here. But um, listeners can can find it if they Google it. And um, he tries to get at the fact that life in, say, 1900 compared to today was slower, more thoughtful, uh, deeper, richer. The only problem is, and I love Mark Halperin. Um, and I love the essay, is that that wasn't true for most people in 1900. Most people in 1900 had hard lives. Um, so we've certainly lost something through the material acceleration and the technological acceleration that has taken place over the last 100 years. I think the challenge of life is to exist in that world, in that environment, in that atmosphere, and still find ways to maintain your humanity. Now, we may never write as well as we once did, although there's plenty of bad writing in the past, even by great writers. So I'm not sure that's a fair point, but you know, I, I keep the Jewish Sabbath. That's an obvious way 
Other people keep a technological Sabbath who aren't Jewish, aren't religious, don't attach it to God. Uh, they put restraints on their phone. They do all kinds of things. We do all kinds of things uh, to make sure that we stay human. I think that's the challenge. I don't think we can stop ChatGPT and AI. I think we ought to be fighting the a different battle. I think we ought to be encouraging people to be aware of what it might be doing to them. We might, we might be wrong about it. But if indeed it is causing atrophy, um, sometimes that atrophy is okay. I don't really mind that I can't find my way on without GPS. I love GPS. I love that I can think about other things. But other places I might want to retain those skills, and I have to work at them. Uh, I mean, just to make an obvious one, my handwriting's horrific. <laughs> it's absolutely horrific. It scares me. It looks horrible. I have trouble reading it sometimes. I don't need it very often. I like the idea of it. I don't need it very often. I think modern human beings are going to confront the reality. We have to decide where we make our stand. Where do we maintain those skills of, I think, conversation, communication, emotional connection? Those are all being discouraged by the smartphone. They will be discouraged, I think, even further by artificial intelligence. We're going to make a stand, decide this is where I'm going to be. Some people will will choose a one day in seven, which is one way to do it. Some will do like the Amish do, and we'll try to limit to a great extent their interaction with technology. And others will say, I like it. I'm going to enjoy it. And I think that's okay, too. Yeah, well, I love the fact that you mentioned the Sabbath, um, because that is a day of leisure. And um, to sort of come to the punchline here about leisure, um, I'm very persuaded by Joseph Pieper's um, famous essay, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And he explains what he means by leisure. And it's fundamentally a kind of um, religious and philosophical openness. I, I'm using those terms, but what I'm trying to suggest is this kind of openness to the world, and in particular to the gift of the world. That is, it's a receptivity to what is outside of ourselves. Um, and Pieper thinks that that's the basis of culture because we are informed by and and it, in a sense, we are given the, the necessary beginnings for a human life by being open to the peace and order of the world. Or, I mean, you know, Pieper was um, a Christian, right? So we can take this from a Jewish perspective to the ultimate beginning, which is God. We can put it in a philosophical way, too, by the way. I mean, Plato's, you know, account of the good as the sun, right? This is a source of light and life. So to things that are outside of us that inform us and that we receive, right? Preferably with an attitude of gratitude. One of the things that's happening that I think um, affects our capacity for leisure is what people regards as a kind of totalization of life. That is, we focus on the useful, right? On utility, but we don't ask the question, what is it useful for? Uh, what is the good that this is serving, or to put it in sort of more modern terms, you know, what's the meaning of all this? What's at the end of the day, what am I doing? Um, and I think what you're pointing to is the possibility, I would even say the necessity of um, human beings kind of rediscovering leisure in that sense, that is relating to the natural world, the given world. One of the things that happens with AI is a kind of closing in or at least that's my fear, right? The generation of virtual realities or, you know, even the loss of the sense of what real reality is. 
right? So um, you mentioned um, the loss of connection, you know. Um, I understand that younger people don't even answer the phone, right? You have to text them and so on and so forth. So now everything is mediated by sort of electronic mediation, right? We don't have face-to-face contact. Um, this was already the case. Uh, years ago, I remember having a former student um, and his wife were telling me that um, anybody they have over who's under 40 is generally incapable of sitting around the dinner table and having a real conversation because they're not used to it, you know, because they, they, it's all mediated by the smartphone. So um, I do think we have to get back to that. And I do think that we have to um, rediscover the skills of kind of contemplation and meditation, not just in relation to the world, but in relation, again, to great books, works of art, things like this that can, that can nourish us. So I mentioned on the show before, I think, that I saw an extraordinary performance of Next to Normal uh, at the Kennedy Center a few years ago with Rachel Bay Jones, who's a, a musical performer. And um, the night I saw the program, the show, she was uh, she had a cold, I think. She, I, could, I could sense some uh, challenges in her, in her vocalization or singing, but she was magnificent. Uh, she poured her heart into this performance. Next Arm was about a damaged woman, a mentally damaged woman, and it's um, it requires an unbelievable vulnerability on stage. And so I watched her go through this, and um, it was just an extraordinary experience. Uh, I think I've mentioned before, at the intermission, it was total silence in the theater. I was sitting next to my wife. I, you know, we didn't talk. She went up and went to the restroom. She said in, in, in the ladies' room, there were, you know, probably 100 women. It was totally silent. People were so emotionally overwhelmed by this. And one of the reasons they were overwhelmed is that they saw another human being inhabiting a part. And through the suspension of disbelief, we were on a journey with this fictional character, right? It's a credible part of, of the human experience. Now, I can imagine there'll be a day, and it's not very far away, where I could say, hey, you know, I don't really want to go all the way out to the Kennedy Center, and it's raining, and, yeah, you know, Rachel Bay Jones is good, but I want to see this with um, a different performer. So I'll be able to have any cast I want. This is our, They're already talking about this with movies. You know, you'll be able to cast your own cast. You'll you'll be able to put yourself in the movie. There'll be all these fabulous, emotionally rich, fake uh, digital opportunities for us in the next 25 years, maybe the next three years. Uh, It's coming fairly soon, I think. Is anything going to be lost from that? It feels like there is, but I wonder if our our kids and our grandkids will sense any loss there and it'll be normal. So, you know, you think of different levels. I could have watched... I've mentioned this before also. If I watch a great performer on stage filmed, it's not the same as watching them on stage live. So, it'll, but it's all, maybe it's almost as good. Maybe they'll find some ways to make it better. We'll live in these virtual worlds. We'll have all these great, rich experiences that we conjure with our imagination. Should I be upset about that? Well, I mean, I think you've answered your own question to some extent, but because the experience that that you and your wife had at at the performance you mentioned is not going to be available if 
people are sitting in their own cave-like homes watching this stuff, you know, um, on, on some screen. Um, and it, this, is a, this is a very interesting question because we have to think about what the meaning of those kinds of communal events is. Um, now, we have this, for example, in sports, although, I mean, I've never been to a professional football game, but I've heard plenty of stories about people going to games and how unruly the crowds are and how, you know, so maybe, maybe watching large men bang into each other and, and you know, and compete in this way is not, with lots of people drinking beer and stuff, is maybe not the best uh, case of like our coming together and having a meaningful experience, but watching um, uh, uh, amazingly powerful dramatic performance is um, we've lost. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, as you know, people like Nietzsche and um, have written about Greek tragedy and the, the significance of it. And this, this kind of sort of almost sacred space where people come together and grieve for the characters, they mourn and they share something. And it's, it's very, um, it's not easy to say exactly what that sharing means, but we know it means something. It, it affects us very, very deeply. And it brings us together uh, as human beings, or perhaps in the case of Athenian drama, as Athenians, right? Watching, let's say, Aeschylus' Persians, and which everybody in the theater had experienced those eight years after the Second Persian War, right? And they're remembering the loss and so forth. And now they're sympathizing with the Persians who are on stage, learning the horrible news of their defeat, etc., there's something deeply human about those bonds. And again, I'm concerned about the sort of disaggregation of communities. Um, you know, like, let's say work. One thing about work, and, and now more people are not going into work. I mean, you know, they're, or at least they're taking some days off and there's more home. We're losing the capacity to be face-to-face -face with other citizens and to interact with people, by the way, who don't always share our views um, to encounter others who are genuinely different from us. Now, of course, if in the best case, you've got technology that allows you to watch Hamlet and you say, I want to have a, a Japanese cast, you know, I want to have a, I want to integrate, I want to have some kind of African experience with, you know, uh, uh, Yoruba tribesmen or something like this. Right. And I mean, you could do that, but um, it's not clear to me that it's going to be as powerful as the sort of experience that you've uh, recounted. Well, I'm going to come back to Peeper, Joseph Peeper and Leisure, a book I read uh, a few years ago. And I know we have a listener, Amy, out there who's going to be very excited that Joseph Peeper gets a reference in, um, in Econ Talk. But that idea of being receptive to the world. So going to a Broadway show, a musical, is one way to be receptive to the world. Being alone with a book is a different way. And, you know, books are also very solitary experiences. We generally don't read them with the other people. We sometimes have book groups. But many of my uh, favorite emotional opennesses to the world occurred when I was by myself grappling with the text, like we were talking about earlier, or reading reading that text with music in the background. Uh, you know, my own self-designed primitive, but self-designed multimedia experience um, I just don't know. I think, uh, for me, the jury's out. But uh, before we move on to idolatry, do you want to add anything else? Well, I would just say, if you're like me and you, you read something really meaningful, the first thing you want to do is share it with somebody else. Yeah. Um, so, 
Yes. Look, the, the, the ability to withdraw and sit in a room by yourself, you know, something Pascal said we couldn't do <laughs> for long, um, is really crucial to, um, spiritual development to intellectual development and so forth. And I think um, actually in a way um, this goes back to your point about, right? Like the, you know, Shabbat having a time apart. So we don't want the intrusion of the cell phone or, you know, um, electronic media and so forth when we're trying to do that. And that's just a matter of sort of personal hygiene. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess, the other point of Mark Helper, and I think in that essay, Acceleration of Tranquility, is that that being alone in a room has seemingly gotten a lot harder. And uh, I mourn that loss. Uh, I mourn the loss of my own attention span. Uh, I read a lot of books on my phone through the Kindle app. And uh, the other day, I actually read a real book, <laughs> a physical bricks and mortar book. And it's a different experience when there's no notifications. But I also found myself sometimes wanting to close the book and check my phone. And that makes me really sad. And that's the atrophy, I think, of a different kind that we haven't talked about, which is the ability to be alone in the room with whatever, you're, whether it's just your thoughts or a book, has I think has atrophied for, for me and I think for people who've grown up in this generation of digital distraction. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's it's imperative that we recover that. Um, by the way, you were talking about reading a physical book. I see you have books behind you, or at least they look like books. Maybe that's just <laughs> a computer-generated uh, yeah. image behind you. But, um, you know, one of the cool things about books, I'm, I'm sure you remember this from, from college, is you, you go into the stacks and you, and you smell the books. Right. And then you walk along. Now, I mean, I, there are plenty of people who say it's all everything. You know, electronics is great. And let me be clear. I mean, I, I love the fact that we have searchable texts. Um, it's, it just makes my work so much easier. But, um, when you go into the stacks in the library and you're looking for, you know, a particular book, I don't know, Huckleberry Finn or something like that. Say you're a college student and then you're like, Wait, what's this? Innocence Abroad? What's that about? Also by Mark Twain. And now you don't exactly have that experience. You can, of course, look on the lot. I mean, it's possible to see what's on the shelf electronically, but you can't take the book down, open it up. You're not going to look at the typescript. You're not going to look at, at the paper. You're not going to, maybe there are illustrations. There's an entirely different set of experiences here. And that's also an openness to the world. And it's that openness that I think is connected with this question of idolatry because idolatry is a relation to ourselves, not to God, not to um, the beginnings that are out there in the world, not to what is gifted to us. And I think that uh, chat GPT does raise, I keep saying chat GPT, but that's just one instance. Artificial intelligence does raise this question of idolatry. You know, one thing we didn't talk about, which, and then we'll go back to idolatry. I just want to get to for a minute, if we can, is what it is intelligence. Uh, a lot of the gloom and doom that I'm hearing is a belief that there will be an artificial intelligence. So it's called AGR, artificial general intelligence. And ChatGPT doesn't have that, but it's a lot of people think we're on the way to it. And I, I guess I think there's a fundamental overvaluing or overestimation of of what algorithm-driven 
um, technology can do to solve problems and to manipulate people and or whether it'll happen. And I think the, as you write in your essay, uh, it's not obvious to me that there's going to be a form of digital intelligence that mimics human intuition and other ways that we think. And more importantly, it will face all the limitations that human intelligence faces and then some. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a belief in the tech community that those limitations will be transcended. And I am not convinced by that at all. And that, you know, that's something we'll devote some, I suspect, future episodes to listeners. But I, meanwhile, I wanted to get, uh, Jacob, I want to get your reaction to that before we move on to back to idolatry. Yeah, well, um, it, this is a point that I made in my article that, you know, the the kind of intelligence that artificial intelligence utilizes is uh, discursive, right? It's sort of um, um, comparing things, analyzing things, synthesizing information, and so forth. What I argued, and actually got some pushback um, on this from various people who had read the article, was that what AI lacks is intuition. That is to say, the direct um, contact with reality. Uh, now, I'm sort of conditioned to think about intuition by having studied uh, the ancients. Um, but uh, if you take Aristotle, for example, um, he has this notion of noesis, right? Which is, which is let, let's say, intellectual intuition, which is, which is cognizing that which is directly before you. And you have to begin with that before you can analyze and, th and synthesize, right? So first I have to say, ah, this is a cow, right? Now, what are the characteristics of the cow and so forth? But you are in touch with the integrity or the unity or the identity of the thing that's before you. And it seems to me that AI is, so to speak, in touch with um, only a kind of um, digital or electronic representation of things in the world, which it then manipulates and dissects and disaggregates and puts together and so forth. Um, so it's intuition, for example, I mentioned this in my essay that tells you whether somebody can be trusted, right? Can I, can I really trust my brother, right? Well, interesting question. I mean, what, on what basis would you make that judgment? Your, your, your knowledge, your, your sense of this human being. Um, and it's a starting point. It's not something intuition can't be argued for, right? I can say, look, that's a cow. And you can say it's not a cow, right? And if this disagreement is fundamental, uh, I mean, I, I might try to give you proof and so forth, but if you don't see it before you, then you, then you're, you're already on a different path than somebody who does see this thing. So I think that, um, that's a, that is, I believe, a limitation of artificial intelligence. It's, it's self-enclosed, right? It doesn't, have contact. It doesn't have this open contact with the world that Peeper speaks about in leisure. By the way, I just want to say one funny thing here. I meant to mention uh, my teacher, Stanley Rosen, many years ago, 40 years ago, said, you know, there's all this fuss about artificial intelligence. He said, I am not interested in artificial intelligence. I'm trying to find real intelligence, right? <laughs> and I think Any there's kind. a that point. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm not sure about that reality thing you're, you're selling there, right? Yeah. In some sense, we are human beings inevitably are closed off in our own way, right? We're in our heads. Our eyes or senses are perceiving the reality around us 
differently from the people around us inevitably. I'm not sure it's that different. Um, it, it feels different, but I'm not sure it's that it is that different when we think about how we make our judgments and and come to the conclusions we we do. I don't know. But but isn't it isn't it the premise, for example, of Judaism that um, there is such a thing as a direct openness to reality? I mean, when God forbids idolatry, right? He says you're not you can't make graven images and wooden idols and all these kind of things, right? What he's pointing to is that in those cases, we are relating to a human production, right? Now, let me step back for a second. I agree with you. Um, there is no pure receptivity in a fundamental sense, or if there is, let me put it this way. When you try to communicate, right, you are making decisions and, and putting things in your own words and so forth, which is a beautiful thing. But you are, to some extent, producing the thing that you're trying to communicate, right? Because yeah. you represent it this way, this way, this way. Do we want to give up on the idea that there is a thing beyond our production that we can relate to? I do not, right? I mean, I can look out my window here and see trees and grass and so on and so forth. My understanding of the trees and the grass, my perception of the trees and the grass, they may be all different, but you know, there's a kind of fundamental phase, right? That there is, are in fact trees and grass out there. Um, there is this mysterious thing called reality, which is outside of us. The problem with idolatry is that it is precisely a relationship to um, a, a, a God or a sort of governing being that we ourselves have produced, right? That is to say, we're talking to ourselves. And I think that therefore the premise is, you know, that there is a God, right? I'm talking about the premise of the Hebrew Bible, for example, or the Christian Bible, um, or the Quran. There is a God, and we relate to that God. And we must not begin to fool ourselves by thinking that we're relating to God, to what is most fundamentally, to ultimate reality and meaning, when we're only relating to things that we've produced. So just as a footnote, I, I'm not sure what, if there's an easy answer to what Judaism feels about reality and you know there's a strong mystical bent in judaism that says that the world is a veil and what we see is actually not real that there's a deeper underlying reality so i i'm gonna i'm gonna bunt or punt or <laughs> push that question away but but I, I i'm with you in that i do think it's useful to assume that there is uh that you and i are seeing the same landscape when we're looking out the same window um while recognizing that our ability to share our, our impressions of that may be hampered by our, the imperfection of human communication. Um, on this issue of idolatry, what I think is fascinating about it uh, th th that you write about is that you're suggesting that the things we, I, I would say it this way, the things we elevate, if you're a religious person, you elevate the divine. If you're not a religious person, the question is, what do you elevate anything? And I'm a big fan, as listeners know, of David Foster Wallace's argument that every everybody worships. So you're going to elevate something. And I do think this moment, there's something extraordinary about the potential for chat GPT and AI to transform us in a godlike way except that it's not God, it's our creation. And I think in a way, 
there's something even more extraordinary about the fact that the people who have created ChatGPT, which is, we presume is a very primitive early step, that we don't really understand how it works. So even though it's a human creation, it has in the intellectual world of technology, it has an autonomous aspect to it, at least an emergent aspect that is not part of the design of the designers, right? In a way, it's um, it, it, so it, it, it is humanly created, but it has some agency of its own is, is, the, is the implication, I think, of the way technology people are talking about it now. And that does make it a little bit godlike, a little bit different, but yet we created it as humans. And so I, I, I don't I don't know how I, I don't know how dangerous that is, but I'll let you talk about that. Why is that so dangerous? Well, I think you I mean this is really interesting what you said. It it actually makes the possibilities of idolatry even greater than I have perhaps assessed in my article, because there is this kind of mysterious agency. Um, now <laughs> at this point we're confronted with the following problem, which I don't know, I, I don't know confidence will be solved. And it's that the, the, the content that artificial intelligence is working with has been humanly generated, right? In other words, artificial intelligence is working on data. Yeah. And that, what is that data? It's been encoded. It's been put in the electronic ether by human beings. Um, and as I said earlier, I mean, what it does, if I ask ChatGPT a question, it's going to sweep through billions, trillions of bits of data and go, here's the stuff. But what is it sweeping through? It's sweeping through things that we ourselves have produced, right? And those, by the way, those are tokens. Those aren't the actual things, right? It's not, you know, again, it's not encountering a tree. It's encountering a picture of a tree or something like that that it's then going to manipulate. Um. It's unclear to me whether that fundamental constraint is going to change. Um, but let's just let's just say let's just sort of take the short term here and say that it won't or it won't for a long time or maybe never. Um, then we really are relating to a being that has a kind of mystery, but that we have filled up with our own stuff <laughs> and you know it's interesting like if you sort of think about the implications of this is there going to be creativity there well there's a certain kind of creativity because i can put things together in different ways but can there be a real sort of breakthrough um can it like a human being come up with something that's not already out there ready to be swept together and reformulated and handed back I think it's going to result, I mean, it, if it's the case that it can't do that, right, that, that that's just the way it's going to work, there's going to be a kind of loss of richness. There's going to be a kind of thinning, it seems to me. Um, almost like in Hollywood for a long time, some of the big films have been like remakes of old ones, right? Like there's no new ideas. Is that what's going to happen with this? Um, and at the same time, we may say, well, this thing has godlike powers, right? I mean, I can't answer this question, but it can answer the question for me. Um, I don't know what to think about this, but it can think about it for me. 
But who's the it? It's us. It's an aggregate of us. Um, it's not. It's not something that's going to break us open and and kind of radically reorient us to a different perspective. Um, because it's not going to be original in the most fundamental sense. Does that make sense? I mean, that that's sort of my concern. Yeah, I just don't know if that's true. I, I think the challenge when I think about those issues, it's that. I don't understand how human creativity works, so I'm really have trouble judging whether this program is creative. I asked it to write a poem about a crying baby on an airplane because I had written a poem like that. It wrote a really good poem. I liked it a lot. You could argue it was better than mine. Um, I'll link to mine and and maybe I'll write up the uh, the one that ChatGPT wrote. But I, I, it looks creative, and and I think that might be enough. I think what's the, the real issue here is. Is there, and let's close with this on this idolatry question, uh, to take a, uh, a book that, that I read a very long time ago, but now is so a part of our culture, you don't have to have read it to understand it. That book is Frankenstein. Frankenstein is this creature created by human beings, but it, it goes awry and, uh, what I think the creators of, of AI are worrying about, the, the people who are like Elias Yudkowsky recently interviewed and Jeffrey Hinton who recently quit to worry people so he could sound the alarm, uh, quit his tech job and was an early uh, innovator in, in AI. The worry is, is that we'll create a monster that is so strong we can't stop it. Right, the villagers bring Frankenstein down, but this Frankenstein will be so smart it'll know how to elude the villagers, fool them into thinking it's their friend, and then harvest their kidneys to create paper clips. That that's the the scary scenario that we've not focused on in this conversation, but I think that's the worry. And and the idea is it does have a godlike uh, set of attributes. I mentioned this to Nicholas Bostrom in 2014. He he did not find it um, compelling, but I felt his view of, of AI was no different than the medieval view of God. It can do anything it wants. It's omniscient, omnipotent. It can, uh, it's unstoppable because it's so much above us. And I think that's the, the interesting idolatrous part of this for me that we've, we've created a God it may actually not be a God, but we're perceiving it as a God that we think can do these things way beyond the scope of humanity. And we assume it will turn in badly, which is interesting, right? Yeah, I'm not sure why Bostrom wouldn't have been persuaded by by your comparison. I mean, his book, Super Intelligence, you know, it's it's quite chilling. Uh, when he talks about, you know, you can unplug the thing, you can do this, you can do this, you're not going to stop it. It's interesting, too, though, because why, like, let, let's go back and ask, why are we developing this super powerful AI? And the answer is, that's usually given, is it's going to make life so much better, right? It's going to improve things. You might put it this way. It's going to lead us to a promised land where... Uh, you know, our lives will have, I mean, we'll have more leisure, we'll have more opportunities, we'll have more capacities and so forth. Um, now, 
On the other hand, what's so interesting about this moment is that you've got people like Bostrom and others who are really sounding the alarm and saying it's going to lead us to hell, right? Not to some kind of earthly paradise or something like this. Uh, and I do think that um, it's being kind of diffused or, or infused into so many aspects of our life, right? Um, I mean, sometimes when I voice doubts about AI, people say, but you use AI all the time. And they point out all the various ways in which you or I might go through our daily life and not just the smartphone, you know, but checking out from the grocery or who knows, right? Any sort of thing um, that we're using AI. Um, again, if, if we become sort of deeply dependent on this thing, then um, that increases the difficulty of shaking free from it, re regardless of its own independent attributes, right? Its own capabilities. Uh, and I think that's something, um, that's something to worry about as well. But there is, you know, you said Frankenstein, I would say something like a golem, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I, because, oh, so I was thinking, for example, of, um, have you seen um, a serious man, right? The, the Coen brothers film, and it begins with this kind of, little drama of Yiddish speakers in some shtetl yeah. in you know, Eastern Europe. And they like the rabbi comes, but the wife thinks that it's actually not the rabbi. It's a golem and so forth. And that's why I say golem. Cause like, you can't tell the difference, right? The issue there is, is this like this demonic being or is it the rabbi? Right. And it's not clear. Right. That's the dangerous part. Yeah. I, I'm more attracted to the, to the um, this contrast you made earlier that is it is it going to lead us to heaven or hell? Uh, you know Scott Aronson who, who's working for OpenAI he's writes a really interesting blog. He's a non-worrier. He says he says he only thinks it's a two percent chance that it'll destroy humanity, but it's a bigger than two percent chance that'll save humanity. And, you know, I don't see that. I don't see the rise in computing power as being an obvious improver of our, our daily life, which is what, you know, you, um, you mentioned earlier. I just want to close with a thought I just had. I don't want to lose it, and I'll let you react, and, and we'll end on this. Um, I, 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 it's interesting, this atrophy idea. I keep coming back to it. Uh, and I apologize that while you were talking about idolatry, my mind was was wandering, probably because I spent too much time on Twitter and I couldn't stay focused on the conversation. But my mind was back to the atrophy idea, and I was thinking, well, wait a minute. Is atrophy good or bad? You know, it's true that I might have trouble making conversation, but I already told you that I don't care that I've lost the ability to navigate. So I want to I pose that as a um, possible way of evaluating the role of technology in your life. Technology does destroy your many capabilities. And I would suggest that that's for the best often. And I think the way to think about it is that it's not always good and it's not always bad. And that you should consider whether you're losing this skill as a skill that you don't mind losing or if it's one you want to preserve. And if it's one you want to preserve, you know, to limit your access or interaction with with that technology. But if it's one you don't care, you can embrace it, like you said, whether it's at the shopping, at the grocery, or, or, or using um, uh, navigation on your phone. And I maybe that's 
a way to think about how to confront this brave new world we're in. Does that resonate with you at all? Well, I, I appreciate your, your giving sort of sage advice about how to deal with the inevitable, which is, I mean, we're, as you said, we're not going to stop AI. It's going to continue along its path. It's, it's nice that a thousand people will sign a letter saying we need to halt all AI production. This is ridiculous, right? Um, it's just going to march on. So what can we do about it? Um, you know, it, it occurs to me to say something like this. Um, the capacities and the skills that we have um, can be explained fairly well by evolution, right? I mean, we're sort of, we're in a natural environment and we're, and we're um, confronting certain challenges and we develop certain capabilities to protect ourselves and begin to manipulate fire and so on and so forth. And, and um, we pass these, these skills down and, and we train our, you know, generation after generation, a certain set of skills that will allow us to continue to live uh, in, in environments that are, are both um, beneficent and hostile. What's going to happen now, I think, is a kind of evolution. And by the way, evolution, I mean, in case anyone's confused, it doesn't necessarily mean things are getting better. It just means they're changing. Um, uh, we're going to experience a kind of evolution in relation to artificial intelligence. And Russ, you've joked a couple of times now about um, the atrophy of your attention span, let's say. Um, and so to the extent that we interact with this new technology, we're going to be changed. The way we think is going to be changed are the way that we um, um, formulate problems, the way we approach them and so on and so forth. And that's going to happen to everybody to some extent, um, even if they have a significant quotient of mindfulness about this and, and practice this kind of hygiene of like, I'm going to, you know, Shabbat, no technology, whatever. Okay. Whatever the procedure may be. So, um, and, and it, there's a kind of bet here, I guess, which is in, at the end of the day, it will either be neutral, its effect on us, all things considered. I mean, when you sort of sum up the goods and the bads or it'll be better. Right. Um, but, it seems like in modernity, we keep making these bets. I mean, I, when you were talking, I thought of Karl Marx, right? Who writes and writes and writes and writes all this stuff. And, and then when it comes to the question of, well, what will the communist society be like? He's got like six pages on it, right? Because we can't tell because everything is going to be radically new and different. We'll have new human relationships, new relation to technology. Everything's going to be fresh and we're just going to have to wait and see. I could say the same thing about Martin Heidegger in his famous rectoral address uh, in which he deplorably gave philosophical legitimacy to the Nazi regime because he, in effect, said that Hitler is the new revelation of being for the German people. He stresses, you know, we will bring like, are we going to bring this new world into being? It's already happening. It's like 1933, right? It's already happening and the youth are leading us forward and we will have this new world, right? And in effect, he punts the same way Marx does like, What's it going to be like then, right? Well, we'll see. We will will it into being, and then we'll see. That's my fear about where we stand now with AI. doesn't make me comfortable. Obviously, I've sort of chosen my examples. Perhaps you could say I've loaded the deck, right? Just a bit. <laughs> but this really is my concern. 
it's fascinating. I first I want to mention I a listener wrote me recently. I, I'm not gonna name him because he didn't give me permission, but um he wrote me about this atrophy issue, and I didn't realize that until we got into our conversation, which is even crazier. That my brain was working on it, probably stimulated by that very thoughtful email, and now I you put it back again. It's like my brain's going like crazy on it, um, somewhat not under uh, my control. But your your examples of uh, and so I'm thanking that listener. But Marx and Heidegger are um, it's it's Adam Smith's man of system. In the theory of moral sentiments. It's basically, you know, you've got a vision, you think you can move the pieces on the chessboard, pieces in reality, like you move the pieces on the chessboard, and you forget they have emotion of their own, says Smith. And um, there's a certain faith. Uh, I won't call it religious. We can call it trust or faith that it'll turn out well because uh, I don't know why. It's a vision. It's a utopian vision. Uh, I, I guess that makes it even more interesting that many of the people who are laboring in this vineyard are worried about it. Uh, maybe if that alone should make us <laughs> very, very afraid. Uh, if they're worried about it, maybe, maybe we should be too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> My guest today has been Jacob Howland. Jacob, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. It was great to speak with you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.